podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Man City Show. It's Nigel Rockman back in the chair. And with no football to talk about, we have gone out and got a City legend. I'm really <laughs> delighted. Someone who played over 600 games for the club, nine England caps, none other than the great Big Joe, Joe Corrigan, joins us this week. Joe, welcome to the Man City Show. Great to have you on. Thank you very much indeed, Nigel. Um, pleasure to be to be talking to you. Listen, let, let's. we know there's no football. The, the current situation is horrendous. I mean, just, just a quick check-in. You, your family, all safe and well? Just just checking in that that's, everything's good with you, with you and yours? Yeah. Yeah, everybody's fine. Everybody's keeping uh, away from one another. <laughs> um, it, it's terrible, terrible times, and I do feel sorry for all the people that it's affected. And well, it's affected everybody in the country. But uh, you, you just have to do as you're told with what the government say. And you know, the the more we do it, we hopefully the quicker we'll get back to some kind of normality. And it's you know, I, I just worry about what's what we're all going to actually come back to. Absolutely, we really don't. It's it's a very difficult situation. I think you're right. All we can do is stay home and get to look at the four walls, and that's what we're. Yeah, doing. yeah. Well, and that's yeah. why we're not meeting. That's why we're not not meeting together in the studio. We're doing this over the phone. But I appreciate your time. Just one one other thing on the football, Joe. And I know we don't know. We've no idea how this is going to end. But there is talk of potentially just to get the season finished, sort of playing behind closed doors. Let's just get these remaining, you know, eight, nine, ten games done. Do you have a view on that, Joe, in terms of how maybe the season should finish? Or should we just leave that to the authorities once we once we know this looks like? Do you have, do you have a firm view? I haven't got a firm view, no, because uh, at the end of the day, we're going to have to leave it to the authorities. But unfortunately, authorities sometimes don't get that right either and you know you, you look at some things that the FA do you, and you know it drives you to insanity sometimes um, the the Premier League have got all these contractual situations that they've got to deal with the television people want their piece of cake they've paid millions and billions of pounds to to, to take the television uh, to take the rights so it's going to be a difficult difficult take but is it the right way to to play behind closed doors is it just for the television's sake because people are still going to have to be there mm. um you know we're all told we can't do this we can't do that I just honestly don't know and how long is it going to be if players are not training in the in the situations that they're used to you know the game's a team game it's not an individual game so you've got to look at that action that's going to have to take they're going to get back before the season starts as a group and then risk something else you just don't know it and and for, you know, there's there's people worse off than you know football at the end of the day, and I think we should look at the situation as a whole rather than as an individual sport. Yep. Listen, time time will tell, and, and more of that to, to follow. Let, listen, let, let's let's talk about you and your your city journey first. Of all, I know you were born in Manchester, and as as a yes. boy, I don't know the answer to this. Were you were you a city fan, or did you support the other lot? What as, as well, I was I was very I was very who was your team? I was very fortunate actually because I, I was born in Manchester St Mary's Hospital, and um, I was then moved. I lived out in a place called Sale, south southeast, southwest Manchester. No, southeast Manchester. Mm-hmm. And um, most of my family were Manchester United supporters. So I was taken to watch Manchester United as a, a young lad, and by my uncle Thomas and my uncle Brian, and um, grew up with you know Harry Gregg and Dave Gaskell and people like that. And then my dad once said to me, "Look, Joe, there's." There's another team called Manchester City over the road, and I, and I honestly always, from the day I, the first day I can remember, wanted to be a goalkeeper. I'd never wanted to play anywhere else, only in goal. And I used to take, take used to have a little croft outside our house, and we used, I used to go round to the corner, the house. I used to say to Barbara Grange, "Come on, you be Mrs. Greg, and I'll be Mr. Greg." And we were on, and she used to fire footballs at me, and you know, when we were kids, and it was just a dream come true when everything happened, but. I was very fortunate. I had two great, great teams to go and watch, and two, uh, well, a lot of good, great goalkeepers as well. So um, it, it, it's 
spurred me on, if that was the right way to put it. And presumably you must have seen the great Bert Trautmann. Yes, I did see the great Bert Trautmann. Not not often, though. Not often, because um, people were, like my uncles, were very reluctant to take me to to Main Road. It was just because they were Reds and, you know, well, you know what the rivalry is between the two. But um, I was was fortunate. I had the chance to see Bert a couple of times and we ended up very, very good friends with Bert um, before he sadly passed away. But I, I had a great, you know, I had a great, great time as a kid playing, playing as much as I wanted to play on the, and then the, I had a big interruption in in school time because I was playing in goal for St Joseph's Mid Primary School, then passed my eleven plus and went to Sale Grammar School, and that was an all rugby club, an all rugby school, sorry, and so I used to have to play rugby in the morning and then play football for my uncle's team when I was 14 in the afternoons and then he sailed in Altrincham Open League and uh, it was amazing, great, brilliant. And how did City first get to see you? How that? How did you go from obviously being... I'm interested to hear you've already said that you only ever wanted to play in goal, so I guess that's all you did. Yeah. But, but how did City get to see you? How did you actually get your first chance of actually joining the great club? Well, I was... I left grammar school and went to AEI in Trafford Park and I was in the training school and I, and again because I was so tall I, I was playing centre half and at half time I used to go in goals and mess about and dive about and you know as you do and after the game I can't remember the lad's name I wish I could um, a guy came up to me and said would you like it to uh, have a trial for one of the Manchester clubs so you know yeah 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 okay alright I'm um, this is God's honest truth. About three weeks after that, I was approached by this guy. I went to to engage in an AEI, and this guy was working there. And he came up to me with an, a, um, a postcard, and it said to me, "We'd like to invite you to come to uh, Main Road for a trial." Uh, it was in October 1966, and I went, "Wow!" And went home, told me dad, and. Uh, Went to then anyway. I went for the trial. Let's put it that way, um, and played in the in two in the two youth team games. And Tommy Booth actually was the centre half in front of me, which was a, a massive, massive bonus. And um, went back to um, Main Road, and Harry Godwin asked me up into his office and said, "Would you like? To, we want you to sign as a as an amateur." Um, and I went, "Wow, I can't believe it." So. I signed signed for uh, for City that night, um, and as luck happened, I well luck ha- happened I should say, um, and not long after that, uh, my dad came up to me. The postman had been and come up to me and he said that this is for you. So I said, "What is it?" I read it and it was a um, a letter asking me would I like to go for a trial at Old Trafford. Mm. So I showed it my dad and my dad looked at it, ripped it up and put it in the bin. And I said. <laughs> I said, "What? What you done the that for?" He said, "Joe." He said, "Well, no, it's, it's just that he had a. He, he was just. He said, you know, he was an honest, great, great man. And he said, Joe, you've signed for Manchester City. That's your club. You go on and play for them and see what happens. Um, you know, you can't chop and change. And, and never a true words spoken. And I went on just. And then the fe- February of the 1967, Malcolm came up to me and asked me would I like to sign pro. So. Um, it was uh, interesting, let's put it that way. I'm sure, and you, and you obviously you understudied to Harry Dowd, of course, when you first. When you yeah, first yeah, I, I, he was well, it was Harry Dowd and Alan Ogley. Alan yeah. Ogley was uh, there as well. Um, two great yeah. teachers, two great fellas, two great, great fellas, and um, everybody at City were were just down to earth, honest professionals, and great players, great people, and they taught you so much, you know. Humility, ability, it was a phenomenal club to go into. And who was it who approached you? You made your debut, I think it was a League Cup game against Blackpool, I think. Um, yes. How did you find out about that? Was, was that something you knew uh, sort of a week beforehand? That must have been a, a magical moment. No, it wasn't a week before. That was the actual day. It was the actual really? day. Um, I was going, I was so going home because I, I didn't have a car in those days. 
and I was going out the out the tunnel, up going towards the tunnel, uh, and up the little corridor that you go out to, to where the players' entrance is. And Dave Ewing says, "Where are you going?" So I says, "Well, I'm going home. I'm just going to get the bus and go into Piccadilly and then get the bus home to sail." He says, "No, you're not. You just stay there." So I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Just stay there. Shut up and just do as you're told." So off he went up the stairs. About half an hour later, he come back down the stairs. He says, "Go home." Um, get something to eat, go to bed, be back here for six o'clock. No, not six o'clock. Yeah, six o'clock. So I said, why? He said, you're playing tonight in, against Blackpool in the first team. I went, oh. <laughs> so I went home, told me mum. My mum, I think I'd beans on toast, I think, for me, didn't it? Uh, if I can remember that format. <laughs> but it was very basic. I couldn't eat anything. Anyway. I was so nervous. And then they made me way back to the to the ground and... And it was mind blowing, mind, absolutely mind blowing. Because it was, you, know, you know, the one thing about the game was, days. you know, sorry. I, I was going to say it wasn't a bad team either. It was not a bad squad around. No, it was a great, oh, great team, great team. It was just, it was amazing though when you come out, when you come down the tunnel. Because I remember one of the early days when I first signed pro. Mr. Alexander, the the club chairman at the time, Albert, mm. he kept, he got me and walked down the tunnel, and we would we would he took me to the centre of the um, in the on the centre spot, and I, when that main road was empty, it was a huge vast stadium, yeah. and he just looked up at me because I think Albert was about five foot six uh, in his bowler <laughs> yeah, hat, yeah. and uh, he just said to me, "Son, if you do this and you do that and you follow in the great uh, steps of." Uh, Frank Swift, this could be all yours. And when you walk down the tunnel in your, for your first pro game, your first senior game, that all floods back to you. And, and you know, it's an all, awesome experience to do. And then the first time I, picked, I touched the ball um, was after about 12 minutes. The second time I touched the ball was about... 12 minutes, 30 seconds, because the ball had gone through my hands, through my legs and into the goal. And I just well, I, wished I'd had a, had a spade to dig a hole. And I, that, I, I, I was, I was, I was going to raise that, Joe, with you, of course, because it wasn't no, I'll uh, never forget the that. best debut in the world, was it? it was, uh, well, it I was anyway. Was it but like it, when you came off after that game? Brilliant, because at the end of the day, you know, again, it was the, the, the type of players you were playing with. You had Bucky, Skipper, you had some of the Franny and all them type of people. They just said, forget it, son, go on, just go out and enjoy yourself. And I actually didn't play that badly after. Um, and then we got a, we got a 1-1 draw. Then the following week, we played the replay in Blackpool. And I had a, I had a great game and uh, we ended up winning 2-0. So we went through to the next round and unfortunately, well, unfortunately for me, but fortunately for Harry, Harry had got injured. That's the reason why I got the, the chance in goal because Ken Mulhern had joined the club. Alan had left. Harry had broken his arm and Ken was um, cup-tied. So that was the reason I got, I got the chance, um, which I doubt that would happen today. Um, sure. So it was just one of those... You know, being there at the right time in the right place, and you know, and learning from that mistake, uh, try and keep your legs closed. And some, actually, some of the I could go on for that, but I won't. Um, <laughs> it's just, um, it's just amazing, amazing. And you know, it, and with that, game, also, we, we need, we need to stop. It's going to. So sorry, we needed to talk about the debut because of that, the, the mistake that you talked about. And, and I don't think we need to go to every game, but but something I'm keen to understand from someone who lived it and breathed it as a as a fan, growing up as a City fan with that team of the late 60s and early 70s, winning all the trophies you did. I, I'm fascinated to hear firsthand the magic of the Joe Mercer and Malcolm Allison, that those two working together. I'm, I'm just fascinated by that. I obviously love them both. What a fantastic combination they worked together together two very different characters just help us understand a little bit joe how that worked what the, what what was so magical about that combination as a as a player well, what, what got us winning all those trophies well malcolm in in the fact that he was such a great coach and joe was his foil he was his perfect foil because joe would talk to the press joe would say all the things in the, the right things in the press he was respected in his football career as a player um, you know, and Malcolm was the extravagant coach, great, great coach. He was far, far too 
early for really the time he should have been involved in football. But you have to take the take them chances when they come to you. It was just an amazing, amazing situation to be in because Malcolm was close to the players and he got so much respect from the players. Um, he, he was brilliant at bringing kids through like he brought me through. He brought Tommy Booth, Ian Boyer, you know, Willie Donachie, players like Derek Jeffries, Tony Towers. It was just phenomenal. And that goes along with the chief scout, Harry Godwin, as well. And, you know, th- th- Harry must have saved the club an absolute fortune. But he also had the insight of buying players like Franny, Mike Sorby, Colin Bell, Tony Buck, you know, and um, players like that. It was, it was an amazing. It, but the, the the one thing I found about it, it was from a young kid's point of view, and Tommy will tell you the same, is just that everybody looked after you. And if you made a mistake, they came and give you a pat on the back. And they just said, get on with it. Because, you know, they've all gone through, they'd all been through that. And they were they were such a great set of lads to play with. They were, you know, you, you, and you respected everything that they told you. You didn't, you, you know, you never questioned them unless you had an opinion about something. But you, you just got on with your job and they, they helped you get on with your job. Amazing. Uh, an amazing era, and I said, you know, we talked about, I know you didn't play in the 69 Cup final, but uh, the Cup Winners' Cup in 70 and the, the League Cup twice in the 70s as well. Um, that team was very, very special. And, and, and you've mentioned some of the players, uh, just, just just on a few of them. I mean, the whole uh, Belly and Summerby trio, that, that combination. Um, just give us a, just a few thoughts and a bit of insight from you, Joe, standing there between the sticks, watching those three operating in particular. We'll come back to some of the defensive players that, you've, that I'd like to hear about as well. But Belly and Summerby in particular for me, I think, uh, was, was just a special combination. What was, it, what was it like playing with guys like that? And what were their particular qualities, would you say? Well, Belly for me was one of the best players. Well, the best player I've ever played with, but and um, he, he he would grace any football ground today, uh, and Summerby and Franny. You know, it's just they were just special people who just they were really top class, top class people. Summerby hard as nails, Franny hard as nails, Belly just glided across the field, but you know he was such an elegant player. But he could he could head a ball, he could shoot, he could tackle, he could run. He, he'd never stop running. You know, they used to call him Nijinsky, and, yeah. and rightly so. But uh, yeah. he he was an incredible athlete. Um, and it was, but it was it wasn't just those. It was the the the, the blend of players. You know, you had Glimpardos, yeah. Alan Oakes, George yeah. Heslop, Tommy Doyle, Mike Doyle, sorry, Tommy Booth, Buck, you know, Bucky. It was a unit. It was, you know, everybody blended into one another's abilities and and failures. But there wasn't many failures. You had, you know, you had on the other side of it Neil Young on the left, and he could, he was a great, great, elegant player. And um, you know, it was it was just a, a blend that Malcolm and Joe put together that it was a rarity in that time. You know, and there were so many great teams around as well in them in that era. It was it was an amazing era of football. Can I just pick up on one, just one further one then, uh, and that's the inspired signing of of Tony Book, who wasn't exactly a sixteen-year-old youngster straight from school, was he? he was well into his thirties. No, 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 no. Um, no, no. And, and and he he came from. Go on, sorry, Joe. No, no, I was going to say no. It was an amazing situation because everybody, you know, it was a a known fact that the club. Uh, would never. Oh, Mr. Alexander said he would never sign a player that was over twenty-nine. And um, apparently, when Tony first signed, he was twenty-eight and three hundred and sixty-two days. Yeah. So uh, it was very close to it. Anyway, uh, not long ago, funnily enough, um, we all found out that he was thirty-two when he signed. Yeah. So uh, exactly. somebody pulled the wool over somebody's eyes and got away with it. But what? What a player! What a mm-hmm. what a right back and what um, what a servant for the club as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, you know, he was. Uh, he was. You know. You know. You 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 knew when you got tackled off Bucky. You got tackled. <laughs> and, and and just talking about the, a few cup finals uh, as well. And obviously away in the rain, winning the cup winners' cup final in in seventy. The, the only European trophy city of one, of course, in their entire history. You were there in the rain. Um, yeah. And, and two trips to Wembley for for FA Cup victories. We'll come 
back to the 81 final where despite being man of the match we, we didn't win that over uh, despite the replay and, and some great goals in that game uh, so just give us a bit of an insight again that that cup winners cup night in the rain obviously wasn't televised of course we had to rely on uh, the radio or kind of a, a two-minute report I think on on the news at the end of it there's no live football in those days it was uh, frustrating as a no, no. I couldn't make it no, no. <laughs> but it's again it's just the FA again isn't it you know the the, uh, the replay was the Wednesday night of the European Cup Winners Cup final and alright it wasn't on television but um, you know I think it was Leeds against Chelsea at Old Trafford um, mm. was on live on tele or was it I don't know what it was live or I think it was live on television on the Wednesday night and we were in Europe and a Polish team against uh, an English team in Vienna, you know, uh, which really at that time wasn't really the hotbed of Austrian football as it become later. Um, there was great, great fans. The City fans were amazing going over there. But as you can understand, Poland was still under the, the communist regime and there wasn't many people. In fact, I don't think there were many people from Poland there, but it was a phenomenal night and it was amazing. We trained on the, we trained the, 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 um, the morning of the game and, um, we went to the stadium and Malkin went to see the grounds and then dropped him a few slotties. Oh no, they weren't slotties for Vienna or whatever they are in Austria, whatever they are, I think Austrian crowns or whatever. And, uh, said to him, he wanted the pitch watered. So as we were going to the, yeah. as we were getting ready for the game, the heavens opened and it was an, it was a, a stadium without a roof and it, it, it just bucketed down for, for an hour and a half. It was amazing. Amazing. And the poor girls had gone out and had their hair done. Uh, the, uh, the hairdressers did it in the morning of the game and they were all like drowned rats at the end of it. So it was, you know, the, the, the meal after it was, um, Let's well, say a sight to be seen, but it was just one of them amazing nights. Again, you, 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 for a young kid who's come to, you know, from amateur football through into amateur Manchester City, then come through the ranks to go and play in a European Cup final and win it. It's it was just awesome, awesome. Um, I'm interested to know. Joe, uh, footballers treat these things differently and I will come on to your England caps in a second and, and the great competition there were for places at the time um, but I'm interested to know obviously you've, you've won cups, uh, you've won I think three player of the year uh, trophies at City yep. um, England caps do you have like a man cave at home there and they've got all this stuff out on display, no. a box in the loft, do you, do you, how, how do you treat with this, some of this amazing memorabilia, memorabilia? I've got them in a box it's just, it's just one of them things, you know. You, it's a horrible thing to say, but you, there's more important things in the, the medals and trophies. The, the, the memories I've got in in my head and in my mind, you'll never replace them. But it, it you know, the, it's brilliant to, to have them. But I ain't got, I haven't got anywhere to actually put them on show, and I used to, but not not. Not since I came back from America, they said, just end up in a box and didn't unpack them. So, um, it may be sad. People say, why well, don't... Uh, now and again, I, in fact, I actually re, re, had a look at them the other week, actually, before I went away. Um, and at the end of the day, you, you, you just wonder what to do with them because I've got two daughters and a son. The son is um, interested in football, but... You know, there's three of them, and would, what would you do with them? Do you give them if you give if you give them something? One, you'd, I don't know. I don't know what to do with them. Um, you know, you'd 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 wish the club would do something, but they don't seem to be that bothered in um, looking at things like that. You know, but for me, football's about the past, and you know. Um, you can't get rid of the past. I know football's got to go forward. It's got to evolve into something else, but without the past, it'll never get to where it should. Um, I just, as I said, you know, as I said before, it's, they're in the loft. I just don't know what to do with them. Well, uh I'm sure there'll be lots of people out there who could give you some suggestions on social media. Um, so let us know at City Podcast if you've got any ideas of what Joe should do with his memorabilia. I suspect City have got a... Well, don't ask that question. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, I'm, I'm amazed. Uh, you, go, you, you know, 
you go to you listen to some of the lads who played at Old Trafford and other clubs, and they, they seem to be the clubs are wanting those kind of uh, historic um, memorabilia for the club, but they don't seem to happen as 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 if it is. I, I don't know about it. I know they've got a kind of a, um, a historic thing, but not 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 many things. Okay. Uh, listen, I want to talk about England, and and I did go on social media myself. Um, to ask the question that people knew you were coming on the show uh, and I've got a few questions at the end that have come in from, from our listeners one of right. a number of people a number of people have been talking about the fact that you uh, played for England only on nine occasions making your debut in 76 against Italy uh, you also went of course the 82 World Cup as well but if it wasn't for yep. a certain Peter Shilton and a, and a Ray Clements you would have had many many more caps and I'm just interested in people are interested to know your views of that two, well, three great keepers, Joe Corrigan, Peter Hilton and Ray Clements, three English keepers all playing at the same time. Um, were you mates? Was it, was it really, uh, were you, were you uh, competition? How, how did that work? And, and were you disappointed only to get nine caps? Just your, your thoughts about that, Joe. I'd be interested to know. Um, disappointed isn't the right word because at the end of the day, you whether you play once for England or... 150 times for England. You you play for the height. You can you can't get any higher than that. Um, and I was so honoured when I first got my first first cap. And it was an ironic situation. We were playing in the bicentennial tournament in America, and I Peter Shilton had dropped out for for some unknown reason. Um, said he didn't want to play for England. Uh, so I was called up, and there was Ray Clements. Jimmy Rimmer and myself, and Ray played against Brazil in the in the stadium in uh, Los Angeles, and then we flew to New York, and Jimmy Rimmer got picked, and at halftime we were two 0 down, and we played in in the uh, Yankee Stadium, the old baseball stadium. Mm-hmm. So uh, at halftime, I was uh, having a little bit of a mess about in the the grass area at the other end of the pitch, and. Uh, Oh, I've got this man daring me. Let's cocker, sorry, I do beg your pardon. My, my mind's going. Let's cocker. I saw Let's cocker running out from the, the dressing rooms, and he come all the way across, come come down the pitch to me. He said, "Got to go in and get changed. You're playing second half." I went, "What?" He said, "Go on, get yourself in." So I ran, sprinted. You know, I think I've never run so fast in my life. Got in the dressing room and. Uh, Don Revy said to me, get your kit on, you're going on half-time. 2-0 down, I've never been so quick getting my kit on. Um, <laughs> and off I went, and we ended up winning 3-2 at the uh, at the Yankees' team. But the the, uh, the funny thing about it was w- w- the goal that I played in, in, in the half that I played in was in the baseball diamond. The actual goal line ran down from home base to first base. And <laughs> With base and the baseball pitcher's mound was in one corner of the 18 yard box, and it was just incredible. Um, and there was like I think it was 40,000 screaming Italians in there, and uh, quite there's only a few English lads, but uh, it was again an, an unreal experience. And then we, we ended up playing Team America in Philadelphia uh, for the final game, which uh, Ray Clemens played again. But I think that was the Jimmy. Jimmy played the first half of that game, and that was Jimmy's only uh, representative for England. And he only got half a game, and he was an incredible goalkeeper. He went on to win European Cup and Aston, with you know, and the Championship with Aston Villa. So it just shows you the competition. There was Phil Parks was around in the two Parks, one from Wolves, one QPR, and it was just an amazing era of of, of English goalkeepers and, and British goalkeepers you know there's Bob Wilson was around Peter Bnetti sure. God rest his soul you yeah. know people like that the, it, the, it was amazing you know it's uh, and it, I just wonder where they've all all that quality's all gone it's just disappeared and why and why is that then Joe because you're up so you're right. You know, we're absolutely awash in Britain. Uh, quite right to to bring those other guys into into the mix. And any thoughts on why it was such a fantastic yeah, I've got a and, and, and and now in this day and age, it's difficult to actually put your finger on who you would say is the best goalkeeper in England. You, yeah. you, know, you would in the Gordon Banks days, it was quite easy. 
Yeah, and going back. Well, exactly. And Banksy was Banksy was still playing when you know Banksy was still playing when I was playing. Peter Benetti, Gary Sprake, people, people like that. The great goalkeepers throughout the. You can name. Go and watch a, a first division game as it was in those days, and you could. You know, most most football supporters could pick the teams and name the teams um, today. I don't think it's the same, but there's still some great players around today. Well, there are great players around today, but in a different context. Um, the goalkeeping situation, in, and it's only my opinion, it, it is, has been has come because of the foreign coaches' input. They, they you know, they never, you never got uh, an English goalkeeper as such going across to play in Europe. For what reason, I've no idea, because we were renowned as being the best in the world. Um, and since, since the foreign influence um, in the coaching side, um, they they preferred a different way of playing, playing with the feet. But, you know, the, for my, from my situation, goalkeepers should be there to stop goals going in and then work on that, work on the feet after that. But it seems to be the other way around at this moment in time. It's interesting that there's one of the questions that, again, that's been raised through social media and uh, Sarah Messenger, one of our contributors, said, you know, if you were playing, could you have been coached to be an Edison-style keeper? You know, keeper playing with his feet. Can it be coached? Or is it an, an innate ability to which you, you have the goalkeeping it, skills? So how, no, would you, how would you answer Sarah's question? It's, it's, easier, to, it's easier to be coached playing with your feet than it is, it is to be coached trying to stop the ball going in the back of the net because you know I had some great great teachers Harry Gregg Malcolm Allison Bill Taylor you know Bucky people like that who helped me and helped me and helped me Bert Trotman he was he was he said some really really good good words to me great help and it was all about stopping the ball going in the back of the net. It wasn't about playing from the back. But don't forget the pitches we played on. If I'd have had to have dealt with a back pass in the pitches we played on, there'd have been more stupid goals going in than that they actually let in. It was, it, they were just amazing. You know, the pitches were, I should say. Um, I think today we, the goalkeepers I've just mentioned could could have played could have played in today. You shouldn't make comparisons, but. Um, especially with the the conditions that they have to deal with today, you know, carpets and you know the grasses is about the same length. Every blade of grass is the same length. It, it, it's just a completely different outlook on the goalkeeping side of it. And everybody says, well, the ball's different. It isn't because we 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 used to train with beach balls and then play with a match ball. It was nothing like the beach balls we trained really? with. But today they play with exactly the same ball that they. They uh, sorry, they trade with the ball that they play with. So there's no excuse, you know. When I was a goalkeeper coach at Liverpool and at uh, West Bromwich Albion, they, I used to say to them, just catch, 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 catch. But when they go out, but when they go out on the pitch and go into a game situation, they all start parrying the ball and uh, not as bad as they do as as today, but. And you just wonder why, and it's that they work on the foreign coaches that I, that I spoke to, Franz Hook and people like that. They said that they work on the basis that there are more defenders in the box than there are attackers, so the ball gets away from you. It's mm-hmm. going to go, more than likely go to a defender, when, but there's always the opportunity that it will go to an attacker. It'll end up in the back of net anyway. So I, I always think I always worked on the premise as a coach that if the, you've got the ball in your hand, I was taught. You've got the ball in your hands; they can't score, but you can. Your team can score. So um, we always worked on that, and we always tried to catch as much as we possibly could. We all made mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. Blimey, Charlie! And it's always known that a goalkeeper makes a mistake, mistake more than likely it ends up with a goal. But you know, the less mistakes you made, that's the better you go, the goalkeeper you became. And, uh, but you always had that push and push and push not to to make them mistakes. But you, well, you know, well, you work with, on the fact to catch the ball. With mistakes in mind, we've got a question from Paul Denby. <clears throat> Excuse me, Joe. Um, what do you remember about Ronnie Boyce scoring from the halfway line after one of your chances? Um, uh, it reminds me of question of sport. I kept that show <laughs> going. I kept that goal. Kept that question of sport show going for about ten years. <laughs> Tell us about it. Well, what it happened? What happened was. What happened was Bucky Bucky passed me the ball back 
in the first half of the game. And I kicked the ball. I saw Mike Sornby one-on-one with the left fullback, so I kicked it down his side. And unfortunately, the, the defender got the ball before Mike and uh, headed the ball back down. And Bucky hadn't recovered into his defensive position. And at a half-time, as you normally do, I had to sit next to Bucky. You know, I was number one, he was number two in the corner. And he said, don't ever do that again, but in a more floral language. Um, so, and then in those days, the word respect meant respect. And so second half, as it comes, the ball comes down, right-hand side of the box, in my mind, don't kick it there. And Doily passed it back to me, I picked it up. You could pick it up in those days. And I then half played it and turned my back on the goal and next minute I've, I'm running back to the goal and saw this ball fly past me and into the back of the net <laughs> and I've gone oh no and I looked round and saw Boothy with his hands on his knees and I looked at his and he went oh I can't. and he started laughing typical <laughs> Boothy started laughing anyway I went to pick the ball out of the net and a guy shouts out from the scoreboard and Corrigan you so and so clown and I've gone oh no <laughs> But and anyway, we got we ended up getting beat. I think Jimmy Greaves's uh, debut for um, for West Ham, and he always scored in his debut. I think he scored two that game. But it was it was just it, today it was being one of the goals of the season because you know they, they don't look at it as a mistake from the goalkeeper today. Um, but it happened, and uh, the, the worst thing was I was in the dressing room after. And I'd not come on the dressing room door. I'd been given a volley by Malcolm and everything, and you you, you know you had it. Had your hands in your, your your head in your hands, and I nearly dropped that as well. Um, but the knock came on the door, and Len, the commissioner, had knocked on the door and said, "Can I speak to you, boss?" And the boss, Joe, went over to him. He said, "Is it possible if Joe Corrigan could go upstairs? Only Bert Trotman would like a word with him." And I've gone, "Oh no!" You know, in your mind, you're thinking, "Oh, what else can happen?" So anyway, I got I, going back to what I said before. Going, uh, I got changed, went upstairs, and went down towards the boardroom. And Bert was there. He was just inside the door, and he took me to one side and said, "Listen," he said, "just forget about that. I, people forget that I let a goal in in 16 seconds against someone. They got beat six or seven in uh, at Main Road. It ball bounced in in front of him, went over his shoulder, and he got beat. As I said, they got beat. I said, "Yeah, but the problem is, Bert, you 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 weren't on television." <laughs> and uh, and uh, you know, but that uh, that show. Uh, Question of sport. It was. It was. Oh, here we go again. Here we go. But it was. A, it was a great strike by Ronnie. It was just a fact. That, again, it it taught me a lesson. Don't ever turn you back on the ball. So, uh, so you know. Um, I don't know. It was one of them again. It was a great learning curve. Great learning curve. If you want an e-bike that doesn't look like it's made for the shopping precinct, something that's less Mr Bean and more Steve McQueen, check out the range of bikes from London-based Cooler King. From dope 250-watt city bikes to Harley Bobber-inspired 750-watt beasts that can tear your face off while leaving your smile intact. Cooler Kings are made in limited numbers, yet highly affordable. Check them out now on the web at cooler.bike or find them on Instagram with hashtag CoolerKingBike. Cooler.bike. E-bikes that are cool AF. Sure. Before we move away from, from keepers, another question from, from Joe. Doherty, and you've mentioned the sad death of Peter Bonetti already, who you mentioned in this question. So, uh, following the sad death of Bonetti, who, in your mind, and I'm going to make it more difficult for you, because I'm going to take Gordon Banks out of the equation, because I think he would win this hands down. So, him aside, who do you think was the best English keeper throughout kind of that late 60s and 1970s period? If you could only choose one, who, in your mind, was the best keeper, Banks aside? Difficult question, I know. But the, the problem is, it's an era where Clem, Schultz, myself all came through, Jimmy Rimmer, Phil Parks, we all came through in the same era, you know. And we weren't, Banksy and Bonetti, were, and Peter were was like 
early 60s and coming to they played in the 70s. Mm. Um, you can only you can only have one, Joe. Who would it be? Know, apart from yourself. <laughs> no, it can be. I, I would, if, if if you're asking about the best goalkeeper at that time, yeah, or no, at that time, yeah, at that time, I can't really give you an answer because Banksy Banksy stuck out like a you know a sore thumb. He was brilliant. Um, Peter was Peter was was rightfully his number two and. And Alex Stepney went to the 70 World Cup. He'd won the European Cup with Manchester United and, and then Schiltz, would, as a young kid, took his place when uh, Gordon got uh, taken <coughs> ill with uh, food poisoning. So uh, I have to say Peter because, he, he, because of his natural number two uh, position. Sure. We'll, we'll take that. Can I talk about the 81 Cup? Come on to that as the next sort of, sort of highlight. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think, I had I, forgotten that you won the Man of the Match award in that game actually. I'd forgotten that, I have to say, until I was doing my research for this. And we've had a, a couple of questions. Uh, uh, one of them particularly about the Tommy Hutchison own goal. I'm not sure if it would have been an own goal today, uh, but it was deemed an own goal. Your view of that, your vision of that, how that all came about? Well, it all came about on the Thursday afternoon, a Thursday morning training session at uh, we were playing, we were staying at a place called Selzen Park, and we went through a training session, and we ended up doing set pieces after the training session. And John Bond said, "I would like because of Glenn Hoddle's threat, he wanted to put the player on the on the post, um, and I, the defence all as one said, no, no, we can't have that, and the argument was." If Glenn's got the ability to bend the wall, blend the ball over the wall and into the top corner, you've got to hold your hands up and and get on with it. You know, you you can't do anything about a thing like that because if if we had a player on the wall, then all they did, all they would have done was gone and stand four or five people in front of me because they they could have put them on the six yard box. They wouldn't have been offside. So anyway, it was decided. It was decided that we weren't going to put a player on there. But Tommy said to me after the game, he said I heard them talking about what they were going to do. And then as Glenn come up to, I think it was him and Ozzy were were there. And as Glenn come up to take the free kick, he decided to break from the wall and try and get back on the line. And if he'd have stood square, for unfortunately, if he'd have stood square, it would have hit him and gone back into the box. But he decided he tried to get out of the way, and it deflected rather than you know what I mean. It deflected it away from there. Was me flying one way to, uh, on a, like a man on a trapeze going going nowhere, and watching this ball going the opposite way, and it, you know. But the game, had, you know, one of them games where you think, God, they're not going to beat me today, and it, it was a a fluke like that that actually, you know, caused it. But that wasn't really that didn't bother me as such. The thing that bothered me more than anything about the cup final was again the FA because the way they treated the supporters was an absolute disgrace, especially Manchester City supporters. And it, it stopped me from getting a, a tenth cap as well because with the draw, I was picked to play. I was picked to in the England squad to play Brazil on the Wednesday. And um, because we drew, I had to withdraw from the squad, and I'd been told that I'd be playing because Clem would Clem was away with um, with Liverpool, and um, and, I, the, and the FA in their wisdom decided to organise a a replay on the Thursday because they played on the Wednesday, and it, it was just a typical football association. And for the City fans, they have to travel all the way back to Manchester after the game. And then the, the tickets went on open sale in London on the Sunday morning. So on the Thursday night, there was like 60,000 Spurs supporters at the game. It was, it was just crazy. And it just typifies the Football Association's thing towards fans. They don't give them, they don't give them any credit whatsoever. They, they forget that people pay hard-earned cash to go and watch the teams that they support. And, you know... Um, well, that, it's, that, it's, 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 it's interesting you say that because I went to the first game again because of what was, I just couldn't get to the re- for, for business reasons. I just could I had commitments. I happened to be actually in Belfast. I, I, I could I just so I never went to that replay, uh, but I was out the first game and uh, I was one of many well, fans in that situation. I think you know, 
there's so many people that we you know we go around to the supporters clubs and we go we talk to supporters and they say the, the same thing. It was travesty. It was a travesty. But yeah. it's not the only thing about the FA. But anyway, leave them aside. It was just it was a phenomenal experience in the fact that it was a cup final, a centenary cup final. Mm. And I got a Man of the Match uh, award on the first game from The Sun and their, their readers. I got an award for that. Uh, but the BBC wouldn't give it me till after the game on the Thursday night. Um, and I was presented to by Birchin, Birchin, was it, was it Birchin or the manager of Spurs? Keith Birchin, was it? Steve Birchin. Keith Birchin, yeah, yeah. Sure. Keith Birchin, but he, he gave Keith, me the, the award Birchin, and... Yeah. And I said, uh, thank you very much and wished him all the best. And uh, what can you do? The, the, on the night, we lost it on the Saturday, actually. Um, sure. um, I've got to, we just, I've didn't, got, we just I've, didn't have the legs for the I've Thursday night. Ch- there, there is a cheeky question coming as well for you. And uh, uh, our friends at the Spurs Show podcast um, have, have also sent in a, a question. So you can imagine where this is coming from here, Joe. So this is from the yeah, Spurs yeah. Show. Should you should you have blocked Ricky Villa's winner in the eighty one Cup final? Should I have blocked it? Yes. Um, yes and no. But the the reason I'm saying yes and no, if if let me put it this way, uh, the ball should never have been allowed to get in the box to start with. It should have, it should have somebody should have been kicked over over the stands. Um, <laughs> you know, it was two two in a cup final. You don't allow people to take freaking. Yes, I should have done. Um, I should have blocked it. But uh, Ricky took a touch, and then he took another touch, which made me go. And he, he took a bad touch, and then he just poked it under my body as I was as I was trying to get down. It was if he'd have gone on his first touch, I would I think I would have blocked it. But because he took another touch, and it got away from him a little bit. That's the one that made me decide to try and get out there, and I, I was a little bit too late. But that, that's, that's in the past. I'm not worried about things like that. Not Let me change the subject, if I can, then, Joe, slightly. So change, change the subject. No, you're proud of, and, and it's actually the first time at Main Road. Um, and Dennis Stewart uh, was president of the Junior Blues, um, uh, a, a brilliant organisation, and huge thanks and praise has to go to people I know you know well, Roger Reed, Ian yeah. Niven and Jesse Ward, just to name three Jesse at the time. And I know, amazing, they, they were brilliant. Um, but I know how proud you when when you were offered the presidency uh, of the Junior Blues after Dennis Stewart. I'm just interested to hear a little, little bit about well, it uh, was how, amazing, about really. how you felt yeah. that sort of things... Well, Dennis had gone to uh, gone to and left for New York Cosmos, and I can't remember who asked me to go to be president. I think it must have been Mr. Niven, mm. and uh, I accepted it because you know I because of my childhood and it was you know tough times, and, and um, I, I wanted to give back to, to to football something that I was so lucky to get into, and it was Junior Blues at that time was a brilliant way of trying to do it. And I uh, tried to get to as many meetings as possible as president. I was so honoured when I was asked. And I had great people. Roger, Jesse. Jesse was absolutely magnificent. And and Julia as well. They were, they were all brilliant at the Junior Blues. And they, they you, you don't realise how much hard work they actually did to, to keep that, or to get it started to start with. And to, and to be fair, to give... Um, Peter Swales is due. He was the one who actually pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. And it it bore fruit because when we went through the bad times in the the late 80s, 90s especially, the Junior Blues group grew up together and they kept the club going and the support going. And they, you can, you know, everybody should look back and say the Junior Blues was really the saviour of Manchester City in, in that bad, bad period that we went through. Uh, and it was only again, through the hard work of people like Jesse and and Roger and Julia that, that made it made it possible. Yeah, and I, and I wouldn't underestimate the work you did as well, Joe. I think you were highly regarded as a president. You did great work. You turned up to so many meetings and got the other players involved, which was such a thrill for the for the kids to see. So I think you've got to take some of the credit as well for for picking that up and running with it. You did a, a fantastic job at the time. I, well, I remember it well. well. One of my ni- one of my nicest moments that I've ever ever had at, at City doing the job that I do as an ambassador for them was when I was in the chairman's lounge once. I was with uh, Noel Gallagher came up to me 
and Johnny Marr came up and they both said to me, you know, how are you? Great to meet you and all this. Stuff. And I'm like in awe of these two superstars. <laughs> and they said to said to me, Joe, you do not believe what you gave us. You know, you gave us some somebody to look up to, you, somebody who we respected and we always wanted to, we, to thank you for what you did to us, you know, or for us. And we were, with, you know, we were members of the Junior Blues. You, you know, you gave us great times. We came to the meetings. The mother used to, uh, the old mum used to bring him down. I'll bring the two of them down, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And look what happened to them. And it's just a great honour to listen to them and, you know, humble, really, just to, to listen to what they were saying. The fact that it was me who gave them a, um, what's the word, a, something, somebody to look up to. So it was... Mm-hmm. Great, great pat on the back and Lovely. Know, the, the two it. super superstars a great story and absolutely and there'll be thousands of people in the same boat uh, hopefully listening to this as well Joe just, just moving on from, from your time at City you obviously you spent a little bit of time in America only only a few months I think at Seattle Sounders Seattle yeah. Sounders you weren't there a, a huge amount of time any, anything particularly to say any highlights from that time in America was that interesting times was it a bit of a waste of time how would you describe it no, no, it was not. No, it wasn't a waste of time at all. It was, it was, it was an experience that that was. It was really telling about football because America was just a hotbed of, of of football at that time. Even though people say, well, it was it was a a, a new sport there. It wasn't the, the the ground, the grassroots of football, the the number of kids that were playing football was was astronomical. The problem was that their parents didn't know anything about football. They were all American football, baseball, basketball. Um, but everybody wanted to play soccer. And th- there were people, thousands and thousands and thousands of people supporting, you know, the New York Cosmos. Uh, I remember at, um, at Seattle, we had a, we had a, uh, we played in the Kingdom and we had 40,000 people watching us in a game. And, but it just disappeared because, again, Football authorities decided if if they'd have given in eighty two if they'd have given the 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 eighty four sorry the eighty six cup final if they'd have given the eighty six cup final sorry World Cup to America they would have mm. um, they would have t- it would have taken off there very quickly but they didn't and it was the era that you know that that they said that they could you had to have four American players in in your in your team. Uh, and the, the American supporters that were at Seattle that told me, they said, listen, we we earn our money hard. We want to do what we want to do, not to be told what we want to watch. We want to watch the best, not not people who are trying to learn the, learn the game. And, and it just it just fell away. It was sad, really. Mm-hmm. But now it's you know I go I go to Canada. I've been coaching in America year after year after year, and grassroots it is phenomenal phenomenal people number of people that play play the sport uh, i'm not going to talk much about sort of your your loan periods at brighton stoke norwich but 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 you kind of then and you just touched on it now you had a very successful coaching career of course when you finished playing as well you spent a long time at liverpool many people yes. probably forget that and then went on and, and coached other places you're still doing the stuff in the in in the states as well so yeah. Uh, yeah. you were a long time at liverpool that that was a successful period of, of your life as well wasn't it how was it going yeah, I, was, I, was there 10 years. I was i was there 10 years i was the first goalkeeping full-time goalkeeping coach there um, and it was it was amazing, really, because uh, Graeme Souness was the manager. He'd, uh, he he got uh, Roy Evans to ring me up and ask me if I'd like to become the goalkeeping coach there. Bruce Crobble was the goalkeeper at the time, but David James had just joined the club. And um, when I when I joined, uh, Bruce couldn't handle the training and everything. He decided to move on, so David stepped in and. He, he was phenomenal when he when he started. He, he, you know, he had every attribute he could he could think of, apart from the fact he, he got bored in games. And he, you know, he's he's, he's he, even though he was uh, a, a really really clever man uh, and a great great goalkeeper, he just didn't have a full capacity to. You know, he got bored very quickly, and if he wasn't involved in the game, he tried to get involved in things he shouldn't. But. But uh, as I say, I had ten fabulous years. There. Um, I learned a lot off when Jared Hulier came over and uh, taught the European way to do things. It was an eye opener. 
um, and changed my whole like ideals towards the way goalkeepers train. Not so much in the in the um, non-handling foot foot part of the game, but the way that you actually train goalkeepers because you know you were taught that time and the time you work has got to be so intense for for short periods of time. Where I was brought up on. You had to be intense for as long as until you dropped, and that just it just completely reversed it. And and I learned so much from Gerard Houllier. Interesting. And oh, what about when City played Liverpool? How did you feel in those situations? I mean, clearly you had a presumably a Liverpool tracksuit on there, and having sort of uh, playing against uh, the well, team it, you probably loved, didn't you? How, how did that work? Well, we well we it was terrible really because you know. Um, <laughs> It was amazing the f- what we had a game against them when they got relegated. We were playing at, at Main Road, and I was on the bench at City. And we, you know, it was the day that the game where somebody run down a, the tunnel and told it was it Alan Ball was the manager, was he? Mm-hmm. Um, I, was he Alan Ball? I said anyway that the the team were lo- the other team were losing or winning, no losing. I beg your pardon. Um, and every, they took the foot off the pedal and we were like just it was the end of the season for us and we were just defending and David James was absolutely outstanding he, he saved nearly everything anyway the guy come running down the tunnel again near the end of the game and said no he'd got it wrong they were actually winning so City I think it was a draw was it a draw 2-2 and yeah they City were drawing, they were drawing the, at the time yeah, yeah. And the saddest thing was after the game, we went on the pitch to to salute our fans that were there. It was the last game of the season, and, and as we as I coming off the pitch, all the city players are sat down going up the tunnel, the tunnel that I'd walked up hundreds and hundreds of times, and they were on the backsides crying. And I'm I'm thinking to myself, what are you crying for? You know, there's nobody else's fault but your own. You know, it was it was just a it was a, a surreal experience walking up. You know, for the fans that were so supportive of me and made made me, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, to see the players just sitting down and I know they were all upset and all this that and the other, but you do you you do your talking on the pitch. You, you're not in a tunnel. I don't know. Maybe it's just the fact that I was as I was as upset for the club as, as as anybody but because I was working for Liverpool it, you know it was it was my job to get, make Liverpool be better you know what I mean that my job was for Liverpool it wasn't yeah, for City yeah. but when you come up the tunnel it was it was amazing to see them and it was so sad in the I, end. I've got a, there are a few final questions but before we do that just a little bit about your sort of ambassadorial role that you fulfil now Joe I know on match days you're there suited and booted uh, I've seen seen you there regularly Uh, just just a little bit about that the sort of characters you meet and the job you're doing for the club now we've been interested to know well the characters the characters you meet are are the ones you're with you know Boothy and uh, it's usually me Tommy Booth and Peter Barnes go around as a trio um, and then there's Richard Edgehill and uh, Ian Brightwell, um, and then there's uh, Tony Buck and Colin Bell. And unfortunately, we lost Bernard. Unfortunately, uh, another mm-hmm. great, great person in the club. Very, Absolutely. very Mister Manchester City. You know, he's fantastic man, great supporter of mine, um, and sadly, sadly missed. Uh, but we have a great time, and we meet so many characters and. You know, you, you sit there and you, or you stand there, you talk, you have your photograph taken, sign autographs, you, you see the kids and the kids look up at you and they don't know who you are. Um, but the, <laughs> the parents do, and they, you know, it's great to hear the comments that they come out with. Um, and it just shows you, it just it's amazing the way the club has gone. You know, I remember Mr and Mrs Shawcross who used to run the, the uh, catering at Main Road Um on their own for the whole club uh, and you look at the phenomenal staff that are at City and uh, uh, it, you just can't comprehend the, that side of football the way it's gone uh, and City are, uh, are one of the leaders on that side the number of people that, the quality people the quality food the quality 
you know, everything. It's everything's geared for quality at, at City in that area. And it's that's, and uh, it's unrecognisable, isn't it, from those days? Totally unrecognisable from those. Those yeah, but I'm saying that. But it's the same, you know, going back to what we were talking about before. It's great in the fact that we, as uh, as former players, can still go around and still mm. do a little bit on behalf of mm. trying to support the club in in that kind of respect. And uh, it, it seems to to work very, very well. Fantastic. A few final questions then, Joe, for you, if you wouldn't mind. We've got a few more here I've not asked here. So this is from Tony Haig. And uh, I do vaguely remember this. You said there was a time when City fans were having a go at you uh, and you went on Football Focus to ask them to stop. And after that, they chanted your name and that's when you got into the England squad. Do you, do you remember that time? Is that uh, Does Tony remember that right? Um, well, I went through a, a bit of an iffy period about in 1972, 73, 74 then it culminated in Keith McRae coming into the club offer a world record fee of £100,000 and uh, listen fans have got a right to have a go anybody they want to have a go they're the people who pay the money to come and watch Uh, but when it's personal when it's having a go at you 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 take it another way and it's only experience that, that makes you learn the fact that if you make a mistake, they've got a right to have, to have a go at you. You know, you're, you're you're playing for the club that they love, and the, the, and I just I just got on with it. And it was having the people around me like Bert Trotman and Bill Taylor and Bucky and people like that who actually push you through them periods. And I remember I was approached by Bobby Chalkman, who was manage, manager of Preston. He wanted to buy me for £60,000, I think, when he was manager of Preston. And Keith had just joined the club. And I went to one of the training sessions. I stood um, stood behind him at uh, the old BA training ground in Timpoli. And uh, I stood behind him watching him train. And I said to myself, I'm not leaving the club. I know I'm better than Keith. And I worked and worked and worked and worked. Um, and... I was very fortunate in the fact that Keith had a a, a really bad hamstring injury at the, towards the end of one season. Can't remember which year it was. I think it was seventy five, seventy five, seventy four, seventy five season. Mm-hmm. And I had to finish off the season, and I I went from um, having that little bit of a bad patch playing then, and I think I, I went on to play like. 200 consecutive league games after that and it was it was just, again going to I always say if you're in the right place at the right time and you get have that little bit of luck mm-hmm. uh, it, it can turn in, and the, I always remember the one slice of luck that I got we're playing at, at Molyneux and um, John Richards and oh, I've forgotten his flaming name oh, Derek Dugan do. sorry oh. my mind's going I, I got the head Derek Dugan there Derek Dugan, I went for a cross and Derek Dugan gave me a right clatter and I dropped the cross and John Richards knocked the ball in the back of the net and I heard the referee's whistle blow and I've gone, oh no, no. that thing goes through your mind saying, oh mate, I've dropped another one. But it wasn't, it was, and I'm not making excuses, Derek Dugan gave me a right clatter. But the referee had blown for a free kick on me and that, that one moment changed my career. It did. It just. Amazing. It was again, just that one incident. It gave me, you know, from being down on the floor, kicked again in, in the, an unmentionable place, um, to get up, take the goal kick and for the goal, uh, the free kick, I should say, and uh, go on from there. And it was, it was such a, a, a weird, weird sense when you come away from it, thinking it could have, you know, just for that one, one second, it could have either been calamity and you'd never been heard of again. <laughs> Or just to get on with it and your look had changed. Fantastic. Joe, we're running out of time. So briefly, if you would, a couple more questions. Uh, which striker did you fear most? Briefly, if you can. There's so many of them. Joe Jordan, Joe Royal, big old-fashioned centre-forwards. You know, um, 
I don't know. There were so many great players. Win Davis, even though he played for us, you, you knew you were going to get a clatter. Uh, as, as, as you said, Derek Dugan, any, any of them. Um, but, you know, sure. there were so many. Dennis Law, you know, Dennis was an, another fantastic poacher. Jimmy Greaves. There were so many, so many great players and great strikers around in that time. And what about your best... Do you remember what you would describe as your best side? Best save, best save yeah. I ever made. Best save I ever made was um, a header from David Webb in a one a thriller nil nil draw at Main Road against Queens Park Rangers from six <laughs> yards, and I dived to my right and tipped it over the bar. Uh, everybody talks about the Alan Clark save, uh, yeah. but yeah. that was on television. The David Webb save for me because we did we didn't lose the game. We we drew the game, and it was. I got in the, you know, and they all uh, Sunday people, you got points out of 10 and mm. uh, Phil Parks and I got 9.5 or nine each. Uh, both goalkeepers <laughs> played brilliantly. And that was just a, a, it was just a save that stuck out in my mind. It was a fantastic save. And I'm saving this one to the end here, Joe, before I do a quick roundup. Um, and, and Nick asked the question, how did the exchange of the center with the wonderful Helen Turner, rest of soul, start? How did that all start, Joe? It started when I got my uh, when I got back into the team um, after the Keith McRae incident. She came up to me as a, she always got on a bus and took the kids down, you know, on the bus to to the away games. And um, I, I think it was a Wolves game actually. Uh, she came up to me as we were getting off the bus and she said, "Just put that in your bag," because I used to have a glove bag and uh, some deco book glove bag. And I put put it in my bag, and from that day on, she she gave me uh, a, a sprig of heather both home and away games. What a fantastic mm-hmm. woman! What a fantastic uh, um, legend she was for Manchester City, and she, uh, very very um, un- honest, lovely, very generous. Did so much for charity and so much for the young the young children around that area. And she, again, she was sadly missed. <laughs> She's sadly missed. She certainly is. Um, uh, Joe, before you go, uh, a quick fire round, and this is this is the last bit. So you can only give me one or the other. Don't think about it too much. Yeah, just give me your answer as soon as you think of it. Are you ready, sir? Ten quick questions. Are you ready? Well, Marmite. Do you love it or hate it? Love it. Sky blue or red and black stripes? Red and black stripes. Bell or De Bruyne? Bell. Christmas or your birthday? Um, Christmas. <laughs> Ma- Main Road or the Etihad Stadium? Main Road. Main Road. Mer- Mercer or Allison? Mercer. Gloves or no gloves? No gloves. Ski slope or beach? Beach. A pint of beer or a glass of wine? Both. <laughs> and finally, my friend, Beatles or Stones? Beatles. Joe, it has been an absolute joy and a pleasure for me to spend the last hour or so with you chatting about City and you. You talk about Helen Turner being a legend. You, sir, are a legend. Uh, I love you. watching no. you over the years. A great servant of the club. You continue to be so uh, a fantastic job at the Junior Blues, which personally meant so much to me as well. Uh, But you continue to do that in your ambassadorial role. Joe, I've absolutely loved it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for asking for me. And I do wish you all the best. And tell all the City Punters to keep themselves safe because we need them for next season. Thank you very much to Joe Corrigan. This is Nigel Rothband saying thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you all very soon. This is a Playback Media production. To listen to all our football podcasts, visit Playback Media. Sports Social Podcast Network.